0: Before we begin today's show, we'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Smokeball.
1: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
2: I first spoke with my guest, Damian Real for a feature on self-driving cars that ran in the March 2018 edition of the ABA Journal. Back then, he, along with many other people I spoke with, were quite bullish on the future of autonomous vehicles. The potential of the technology was obvious. No more worrying about someone trying to text and drive. No more need for drunk driving checkpoints. No more danger of falling asleep at the wheel. In other words, remove human error, negligence, or recklessness from the equation, and cars would cease being an instrument of death and dismemberment. Plus, people could get from point A to point B and not have to look for parking, since they could just send their cars home until they were ready to be picked up. Who couldn't get behind that? Of course, it's been more than four years since then, and there hasn't been much progress when it comes to driverless cars. Last week, Google's autonomous vehicle program, Waymo, announced it would roll out a 24-hour taxi service in Los Angeles, although it wasn't clear when or if it would actually happen. Most major car manufacturers have sunk hundreds of billions of dollars into developing and testing driverless cars, yet the finish line seems to be nowhere in sight. So what happened? My name is Victor Lee, and I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. And joining me on today's episode of the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast is Damien Real. Damien serves on the Minnesota Governor's Council on Connected and Automated Vehicles, where he worked on updating the state's rules, laws, and policies relating to driverless cars. He is currently Vice President of Workflow and Analytics Content at Fastcase. He is also part of the leadership team at the Sally Alliance, which is dedicated to standardizing legal taxonomy. And he co-founded All the Music LLC, which helps songwriters make music. He is here today to talk about driverless cars and the future of the autonomous vehicle industry. Welcome to the show, Damien.
3: Thanks so much, Victor. Great to be here.
2: So I gave the quick you know, elevator speech about you and your background. Could you talk a little bit more about you, yourself and, and your legal career? Specifically, how did you get involved in, in the tech sphere and, and with driverless vehicles?
3: Sure. I've been a lawyer since 2002. So I litigated with a large firm, Robbins Kaplan, for about 15 years. I represented Bernie Madoff victims and uh, other things. But um, before I was a lawyer, I've been a coder since 1985. So I have the law plus tech background. So everything that I've done as a lawyer, I've kind of seen through a a tech lens to be able to think about how the tech is affecting the laws that we're uh, dealing with in litigation and regulatory matters. So really, the way that that led me to the autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles is that I I found that, uh, you know, there were a few people thinking about the space, about how is the law going to change with the advent of autonomous vehicles. So I wrote and did a lot of research as to how, at least what I thought is going to be the trajectory of where negligence cases uh, will ultimately end up. And, you know, how does it turn from I as a human uh, took a left turn into traffic, therefore I was negligent, to I as a programmer programmed the the car to be able to take a left, left turn into traffic. And so that really made me realize that it's going to take uh Negligence cases uh, for humans are going to turn into product liability cases for the coders that have been coding the things and for the data scientists that are creating these autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles. Uh, So anyway, so that kind of writing led me to the Minnesota Department of Transportation's general counsel uh, attended one of my presentations on it and said, you know, we're creating this commission on connected and automated vehicles. We would love, we don't yet have a lawyer. Uh, We would love to have you uh, be able to help advise the governor on uh, the extent to which Minnesota should or should not regulate connected and automated vehicles and uh, be able to think about all of the legal implications Uh, that connected and automated vehicles have. So I've been a part of that work since at least 2018, and uh, the charter for the commission is going to be renewed this coming year.
2: Gotcha. So... When you first heard about automated vehicles, what was your what was your initial reaction? Was your idea, oh my god, the idea of of a robot driving a car? That's crazy. Or or was it always something that you kind of thought, okay, maybe this is where it's heading. I mean, you know, computers can already do a lot of things that humans can much faster, much more efficiently, uh, freeing humans up to do you know other things and whatnot. Especially in the law, was this just something that you kind of saw was okay, this is the next step, and it makes sense to me, or was or, or were you kind of like, oh my god, this is crazy. What's 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 next, you know? driverless planes or driverless, you know, like, like, what was your reaction?
3: I was very optimistic. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. So I've, uh, throughout my lifetime, moved from the analog world. And I, you know, started coding in 1985 for the web since 95. And, uh, and so I've really been a part of the major change that has happened from the early 1990s to the present. So I thought that the autonomous vehicles would be a swift change, much like the web was a swift change. Uh, so I really bought into uh, the Elon Musk hype that he said, you know, within three years, uh, we're going to have, you know, of the vehicles uh, made are going to be autonomous vehicles. I really bought that hype, uh, not realizing that Elon Musk is more salesperson than he is a futurist. So anyway, so I I saw that as being viable, much like software, the exponential gains we've received on the web and through data um, has been exponential. But the thing I didn't realize that I think most other folks did not realize too, is that um, doing things in meat space, that is in the real world, uh, is a lot harder than doing it in virtual uh, virtual space. Uh, That is, you know, trying to figure out how atoms move through the real world um, is really a lot harder than figuring out how, uh, you know, bits through, move through the internet. So uh, I was very optimistic to answer your question. And uh, of course, that uh, optimism has been tempered a lot over the last several years.
2: So where do you stand right now? I mean, as far as, you know, I mean, you, you heard my spiel at the beginning, and you've done a lot more research into this than I have, and you've seen the clips online of like, whenever anything goes wrong, there's always some kind of Instagram or TikTok of like some car that can't turn left or some, some automated car that can't make a U-turn or a three-point turn or whatnot. I mean, do you think that that kind of stuff, you know... Makes it harder for widespread adoption because people think, "Oh, well, a robot will never drive a car as well as a human can," and it kind of feeds into already preconceived notions of technology being dangerous and, and being something that people should be afraid of. Or do you ha- or does the optimist side in you still prevail where you think, "Okay, well, once people realize the benefits, then they'll they'll embrace it, and it might take time, but people will get there eventually." Like where do you, where you kind of stand right now?
3: Sure, I I think that we as humanity tend to, if you think about a five-year horizon, predicting what's going to happen in five years, and then predicting what's going to happen in ten years, uh, we always uh, seem to overestimate what's going to happen in five years, and we always tend to underestimate uh, what will happen in ten years. Uh, And so I I think that the kind of you know the Gartner hype cycle, uh, you may be familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, where you have you know heightened optimism, and then you have a, a trench of discontent. And I think that we're certainly in that trench. Of discontent uh, right now where people realize that uh, connected and automated vehicles, uh, that is a very hard to surmount a problem, uh, and getting to level five automation that is fully automated vehicles may never happen, uh, despite most of our cheerleaders best efforts to make that happen. So I think part of the reason that we're kind of in this period of discontent is the Dunning-Kruger effect is that, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect is largely if I'm an expert in one sphere, I tend to think that I'm an expert in other spheres as well. So if I'm Elon Musk and I'm an expert in PayPal, I realize, uh, that I'm a good engineer. Therefore I, uh, probably going to be good at rocket science, which turns out he's pretty good at rocket science. And then he thinks, well, maybe I'm going to be pretty good at autonomous vehicles. And it turns out he is pretty good at autonomous vehicles, but he overestimated how quickly he's going to be able to solve the problems of that. Um, so really, the um, some of the biggest problems for autonomous vehicles that we found is uh, what we in the computer science field often call edge cases and corner cases. So for example, uh, Musk has talked about how you can model, uh, you know, millions of miles and tens of millions of miles on the computer, and you could have them run simulated, uh, you know, car drives. But what you don't put into that simulator is what a a semi-truck trailer uh, looks like when it's tipped over on its side. (laughs) That is something uh, that, uh, of course, the engineers haven't thought about, but things that Tesla's cameras pick up all the time. Uh, And so, you know, they see, you know, tipped over semi-trailers, they see deer jumping out, uh, and what does a deer look like when it's jumping in front of your hood? Um, what does a, a child with a balloon look like? All of these uh, obstacles that we as humans uh, take as second nature, but it takes a machine a while to be able to figure this out. So all of these edge cases and corner cases, that is rare occurrences, are uh, you know, hard to be able to uh, figure out uh, what happens. And even the the uh, lowly left turn that I described earlier—it's um, surprisingly r- really, really hard for the machine to be able to figure out, is it safe to take a left turn in between car number one and car number two? That is something that uh, we, you know, some of us as humans have more uh, risk appetite to be able to say, yeah, I have plenty of time before this next car comes to be able to take this left turn. Uh, But of course, if you're an engineer, um, do you want to take that risky maneuver or do you want to wait until uh, it's totally safe? You know, if uh, you have to be able to estimate how fast is that car coming? Are they doing 20 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour? Because that will determine whether I actually have time to take that left turn or not take that left turn. So all of that's to say that these are all harder problems uh, than uh, the engineers uh, initially thought. Uh, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're in this trench of discontentment uh, in the uh, in this autonomous vehicle space.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the articles that I read compared the cars to Derek Zoolander, like they couldn't go left. I'm like, that's probably not... The image that you want to be compared with.
3: <laughs> that, that's exactly right. Yeah, computers are really dumb, And right? For as smart as they uh, as they appear, um, all of the smarts that go into a computer are really due to the data scientists that coded that computer, right? Uh, so anyway, so the the machine is only as good as the people that code it, and of course, uh, being able to use visual input to be able to tell if that car is coming at twenty five miles an hour or that car is coming at seventy miles an hour, that's a really hard thing, especially if you're in a snow Storm, <laughs> especially if it's, uh, if it's a foggy or smoggy day that day. Um, each of those things uh, is a hard problem to solve.
2: So, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Smokeball is the cloud based practice
0: management software that lets you run your law firm like a well tuned business, automatically record your time and activities, easily organize documents and conversations from every matter, complete and send documents quickly with a vast library of preloaded forms and work efficiently with robust Microsoft Office integrations. Smokeball puts the power of anytime, anywhere at your fingertips. Schedule your free demo today at Smokeball.com. As you know, it's important to keep your voice down when you're inside a library, but it would be really annoying to talk like this all the time. So I'm happy to say that even though the APA Journal's Modern Law Library podcast discusses a new book with its author every episode, it doesn't take place inside a library, so we don't whisper on the show. What a silly idea that would be. The Modern Law Library podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Follow along wherever you get your podcasts. Shh.
2: And we're back. So uh, you talked about Elon Musk a little bit before the ad break, and I was just wondering. I mean, obviously he, he's been in the news for a lot of other things recently that don't have much to do with uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, and obviously he's a very polarizing figure, somebody who inspires, you know, great devotion, but also a lot of criticism and even outright hatred. I mean, do you think having someone like that so closely identified with autonomous vehicles, do you think that's helped kind of like hold it back as well, or do you think it's just just a coincidence?
3: Well, I think part of uh, Elon's problem is that he has his fingers in so many pots, right? As you alluded to, the, uh, he has the Twitter pot, he has a SpaceX pot, he has the satellite internet uh, service, of course, and then he has the Tesla on top of that. Uh, so he's, he's uh, very dispersed in his interests, and therefore, um, I don't know how much he can devote time to Tesla uh, versus those other interests. And so I, I think that um, you know having a polarizing person be dispersed in their attention uh, is uh, kind of tricky for the industry, uh, the autonomous vehicle industry. So I would say that of the companies that are doing this, that is, for example, you know, uh, Tesla and Waymo and all the other companies in the space, it seems like Tesla obviously has the market advantage in having the most number of cars on the road. And by having the most number of cars on the road, has the most number of sensors on the road. That is having, uh, being able to have the cameras to be able to see the uh, trailers, uh, the semi-trailers flipped on its side, and to be able to build those into their models to be able to avoid the semi-trailers in the future. Um, so anyway, so he's, since he has the most number of cars on the road, he has the most number of sensors on the road, therefore he has the most amount of data that he can put into them. I think that gives them some of the best shots as to being able to work in this space. But, uh, you know, of course, as fast as he's going, there are still lots of problems that need to be solved like you know i i'm speaking to you right now from minnesota uh during a lot of the year there's snow and ice on the on the road how does tesla's connected vehicles uh, and automated vehicles work on snow and ice who knows right probably not very good because the models haven't really accounted for those things uh, if there's a snow drift going across the uh, across the road what is a autonomous vehicle level five going to do with that your guess is as good as mine so anyway so lots of lots of things to be uh, to be parsed out of uh, what uh, the edge cases and corner cases. But it seems like Elon Musk with his data advantage um, is in a good place to do that. Gotcha.
2: And so uh, you, you also spoken a little bit about Determining liability, as far as you know, who's at fault if there's an accident regarding an autonomous vehicle—is it you know the um, the manufacturer, is it the programmer, or whatnot? So where do we stand on? Because I know we talked we talked about this four years ago, and, and and this is something that people you know still talk about this being the being the main issue uh, in in terms of like one of the one of the main legal issues and whatnot. So where do we stand right now? Like, have we made any progress as far as determining like where the fault would lie or where we were like back then?
3: I think the beauty of our common law system, based on new questions like you just asked, is we look to the old questions. Uh, And so, you know, in any negligence case, uh, we always uh, look to product liability. You know, we say, who can we pin the tail on? (laughs) Right. So uh, when I was a plaintiff's lawyer, I would say, okay, I could sue the manufacturer. I could sue the retailer. I could sue. I could sue. I could sue. Right. Here are all the people that I could sue. Sue them all and then let the courts figure out who's liable or who's not liable. So I think that's uh, the sue them all. uh, point is where we are right now. Uh, So if If you, uh, you know, you could imagine if you have an autonomous uh, vehicle that gets into a collision that uh, causes death or otherwise, you might sue the quote unquote driver of the car. Uh, you know, if it's uh, level three or, or so, uh, maybe the driver has parts of the fault. Uh, maybe the manufacturer has part of the fault. Maybe the coder who created uh, the models to be able to do the connected vehicles. Maybe they have part of the fault. Uh, and then let the court decide uh, and to be able to put a percentage of fault on each of those players. Maybe the driver was X percent at Fault uh, and the machine was Y percent at fault. And I anticipate that that kind of allocation of percentage of fault is going to continue uh, in cr- uh, connected and automated vehicles in the same way that's continued for, you know, since time immemorial for any case. You know, driver one was 60% at fault and driver two was 40% at fault. Um, that's something that allocation of uh, fault is something we've done um, since cars were invented. And I anticipate that that would be also the case by case analysis for any given collision. Uh, so if you have a you know level 3 uh, partially automated vehicle that might have given an alert to the driver to say hey driver there's something coming up you should probably slow down and that maybe the driver doesn't respond in time or maybe they did respond in time or maybe the alert didn't happen in time for the driver to respond um each of these are fact questions that largely are for juries to decide uh and so i think that we are going to for um at least the foreseeable future have those kind of fact questions uh that will go to the court as to uh you know pinning the tail on uh the donkey which of the tails are applicable uh whether it's drivers or programmers or manufacturers
2: gotcha are there other thorny legal issues that are impacting widespread adoption besides the, what, what, what we talked about with uh, apportioning blame or uh, liability?
3: Well, one of the interesting things that Bryant Walker Smith, uh, he's a professor in uh, used to be North Carolina or South Carolina, I forget which. But he raised the idea that um, in other industries like the vaccine industry, they to be able to say we want to provide vaccine makers with some sort of uh, confidence that uh, they're not going to get sued out of existence for the vaccine. Uh, what Congress did was to create a vaccine um pool of money, that I as a vaccine money maker essentially contribute to this pool so that if there is a mass liability, that is a vaccine creates some sort of problem in the health, um, then uh, damages from that will come out of the pool. So it's almost like an insurance, a mass insurance for vaccines. So Grant Walker-Smith said maybe we could do the same thing for autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles. To, uh, so the idea would be to, for uh, for us as a society to encourage the autonomous vehicles, uh, maybe we could have a uh, a pool of uh, money where uh, Congress sets up uh, so any connected and automated vehicle uh, provides uh, money to this pool, then any liability could be be able to pay it out of that pool rather than to the individual maker. So anyway, so that maybe is uh, one reason why we're not going as quickly as we could is that we don't have the pool that I just described and therefore people are that is manufacturers are more cautious as to uh, rolling out new things because uh, you know if I am Tesla, and I wanna go to level five, but I know that I could get sued out of existence uh, because there is not a pool for me to be able to rely on, uh, then maybe I make my algo much uh, more cautious than I would otherwise. That is, I may maybe say, you know, I'm when I take a left turn, uh, because I'm not sure whether that car in front of me is going 25 miles an hour or 75 miles an hour, I'm just gonna wait the 45 minutes it takes until the left turn happens, right? Uh, so anyway, so any algorithm is, you know, you determine your risk. And so maybe the risk threshold is too low so that the manufacturers uh, maybe are rolling it out too slowly uh, for us to be able to get the benefit, which I think everybody understands. Is of course the benefit is self-driving cars will, uh, you know, reduce the number of accidents and will be able to allow people that are blind and people that are old uh, to be able to uh, have mobility in ways that uh, don't uh, they're not able to today. So anyway, so that's that's at least uh, one solution is to give that kind of uh, pool. To be able to draw from to accelerate the tech but really whether that is the sticking point or whether it's the tech just being really hard is the sticking point um i think it's probably more so the tech being really hard
2: all right we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor
1: in a world that's constantly changing the law and how it's practiced must also evolve to keep up with those changes The ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast dives into the compelling stories surrounding lawyers' personal and professional lives. I'm your host, Stephanie Francis Ward, and each month I bring on a new guest to explore their involvement with our dynamic legal ecosystem. For the stories that bring the law to life, follow the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network.
2: And we're back. So uh, let's talk trucking since that's one area where it seems like this has shown some promise. Um, Self driving trucks can eliminate the need for long haul human drivers and they can more easily drift off each other, similar to like race car drivers and making them more efficient. Is it more likely that we'll see the tech catch on here? And do you kind of see like a rosier future for autonomous trucks?
3: Oh, 100%. The biggest problem within uh, the connected and automated vehicle industry is is, uh, being in-city driving is really hard. But if you think about driving on the highway, you know, my driving instructor said, just keep it between the lines, right? Right, (laughs) So being able to just keep it between the lines, especially on, say, four-lane highways, that is, uh, if you have two lanes uh, and going the same direction, uh, then uh, it's, you know, it's almost almost mindless uh, to be able to drive on those four-lane highways. You just have to keep it between the dotted line on the left and the, the solid line on the right. So what a lot of folks have been talking about, and I think what we're seeing come to fruition, is the connected vehicles essentially platooning, that is having a row of connected vehicles following each other uh, on the highway, and then when they reach the city limits, uh, then being able to hand that off to a uh, human driver for them to take it to the last mile. So essentially you could have distribution points on the outskirts of a city, uh, and then to have humans drive them into the city to be able to do, uh, deliver uh, whatever they is, uh, they're doing to deliver. So that platooning is something that we're seeing today, and we're seeing regulatory agencies and states uh, permitting that kind of platooning. And even if there's not an autonomous vehicle at the front, uh, you know, what uh, we're often seeing, too, is that maybe on the front of the platoon, uh, you have a human driver, and then maybe you have two or three autonomous vehicles that are trailing the human driver on the front. So essentially almost giving like a train that where you are right. you have the conductor on the front and then you have people following behind. I think that's uh, because it's easier to follow than to lead. <laughs> you could have the human follow and essentially have a force multiplier of the autonomous vehicles behind the human driver uh, to be able to essentially follow in their footsteps.
2: And um, another thing that I remember talking to you about was um, like uh, uh, shuttle buses for like universities or, you know, like people movers kind of like in that realm where you have like, People getting on a shuttle bus or or some kind of like yeah like trans transit system that it's it's somewhat closed then because it goes within the campus so you're not out driving in the in the city or you know you're you're in more of a closed environment. I mean, are, are you seeing promise in that area as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So here in Minnesota, we have uh, at the Mayo Clinic, which is down in Rochester, Minnesota, there is a people mover that is doing exactly what you described to move from one point in the city to the other point in the city, especially if you are being treated at the Mayo Clinic, then you're able to use that people mover. And at this point, it's you know a lot of the benefits from the people mover are pretty obvious is that um, they have uh, defined streets, you know, between uh, Tesla, which can go on any road and the people mover, which can go on these streets alone. Uh, a lot easier for a coder, a developer to be able to say, okay, if I know that I'm only doing these streets, I know exactly what these streets look like, therefore uh, it's much less risk to the attendees. Uh, similarly, uh, the, there's less risk because unlike a Tesla, which I could drive at you know 80 miles an hour, um, the people movers do not n- go even nearly close to that speed. Maybe okay. they go 10 or 15 miles an hour. Um, so then the odds of them getting in uh, catastrophic failure are much less. So yes, uh, is a short answer to your question that yes there's uh, people movers uh, because of the defined routes and because of the low speed are an obvious place for uh, the kind of uh, the first steps in these autonomous vehicles uh, to go uh, so if people that are listening to this are probably going to have their first auto- fully autonomous uh, experience it's probably going to be with a similar people mover
2: so you talked about all the data that Tesla has access to and whatnot so we must be talking about terabytes or petabytes or some other byte that I can't think of so what happens to that data then? Like, you know, like, obviously, obviously Tesla collects it, but then do they have to turn it over? Does it get secured in the cloud somewhere, or would would, people, would cyber hackers be able to access it? Like, what happens to that data, and what's the danger that it could be unsecure or leaked out?
3: Yeah, that's something that we on the Minnesota's Commission uh, for Connected Vehicles have looked at a lot, uh, and I think the number that I heard last was about two terabytes of data that a Tesla car will throw off in a given day. And the context by which states are thinking about using some of that data is as we move away from gas-based road fees, that is gas tax which pay for the roads, of course, electric vehicles don't use gas, uh, therefore they don't pay gas taxes, therefore they don't really pay for their share of the roads. So states are thinking about, instead of using uh, location-based tracking, to be able to say, I drove this many miles in this state, uh, to to be able to say, okay, based on the number of miles you drove with your electric vehicle, we will charge you this number number of amount in taxes. And so you can imagine that, uh, you know, does a state collect that data, location data? Do they not collect that location data? If they do collect that location data, how do they secure it and what kind of privacy implications are involved? You could imagine that if a legislator uh, finds out that their data could be used to see if that legislator went to that legislator's mistress's house, right? That that would obviously not be a very oh, that uh, wouldn't good happen. result. Come on. Uh, it, it would never, ever happen. So you could imagine that there's uh, real questions and we're um, I'm the head of the data uh, privacy and data security uh, subcommittee of the commission. I'm talking with some companies that are trying to solve that problem so for example um, if they could be a a third-party broker That collects uh, the location uh, that a Tesla goes, and then um, I, as a user of that service, can say either number one, I give them my location data to be able to say I drove this many miles in Minnesota, uh, but don't count the miles that I drove in California or somewhere else. That's option one. If I'm fine with giving that location data, but option two is that no, that I don't feel comfortable with that. Therefore, I'm not going to let you see the location I drove, but I will give you my odometer settings. So you, as Minnesota, can charge me for the full amount of the odometer reading, even if some of that time was spent in California or other places. So anyway, so the location and privacy and security implications of what data do of the two terabytes do states bring in uh, or not bring in? And to what extent is that data secured, anonymized, aggregated? Um, those are also really important questions that I think our states and other regulators are thinking about. So
2: let's talk about the future then. I mean, do you foresee fleets of driverless cars on the road in the not too distant future? Or do you think that day is still very far away?
3: That's If you'd asked me that question, well, I guess you did ask me that question in 2018, I was, and I was totally wrong on that. So I, I hesitate to say, yes, uh, it is definitely going to be a part of our future. I think I will see it in my lifetime. Uh, I'm currently in my mid-40s. Um, but getting back to, you know, we over uh, overestimate five years and underestimate 10 years. I, I would say that, you know, I'm hopeful that by, uh, you know, today's 2022, i hopeful by the 2032, we're going to have maybe 50% of the vehicles on the road be Connected and automated vehicles. The real question is, you know, it's not binary—is it automated or not? But it's really of the levels. Uh, what is it going to be? Because you have level zero, which is fully, um, fully manual, and you have level five, which is fully autonomous. Uh, but there's lots of, you know, level three and uh, level two vehicles out there. So, for example, lane assist is level two, uh, and then you know, Tesla has, you know, maybe level three. Uh, And then, you know, it's gonna be a while before we get to level four and level five. So to really answer your question, I think the question is, you know, what amount of level three cars are we gonna have on the road versus level four cars on the road versus level five cars on on the road? And I think that that's, uh, you know, we're going to be dealing with that kind of road to automation, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, as we go to the, um, the, the actual automation. So I'm hopeful that by 2032, we might have, you know, half of the cars might be level four. And then, you know, maybe uh, more than that, are level three uh, like Teslas are today.
2: Gotcha. And uh, finally, if our listeners wish to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so?
3: Um, it's uh, my uh, Twitter handle is my first name last name so Damien Real on Twitter and uh, you can feel free to call uh, write me at uh, my day jobs with Fastcase and it's D last name D Real at Fastcase
2: thank you again for joining us, Damien. I really, you know, I, this wasn't a case where I wanted you to come on and just be like, okay, you were wrong, you were wrong, you were wrong. <laughs> Obviously, the reason why I wanted you on the show is because uh, you are one of the authorities in this in this area. And, and when I when I talked to you four years ago, you know, I, I really learned a lot from you. And, and I learned a lot from you this time. And so I, I thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
3: Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I love talking about this topic, and I look forward to doing it again soon, hopefully.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please go to your favorite app and check out some other titles from Legal Talk Network. In the meantime, I'm Victor Lee, and I'll see you next time on the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.